0: Welcome to Doc Student One Hundred and One, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Lania Rademaker, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. Hey, you guys!
1: Hi, Scott. Scott. Hi.
0: Hey, Scott. Um, Peter. We are yes. joined today by two guests, uh, Peter and Lania, and I'm really excited about it. So, Peter, I want you to introduce, since you invited our guests. Um, and in the in the prep for the show, I really enjoy talking to these people. So I'm uh I'm eager for you to introduce them so we can get going, Peter.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm this is gonna be fun. Um I will begin the introduction and let them continue to introduce themselves. Um I started um well, I've known Shandon Klein for a, at least two to three years. I don't remember exactly. She's one of the professional staff at our church. so And I knew that she had started at SMU in the Ph.D. program Um, just as a wonderful conversationalist. And I thought this would be a good chance to to talk with her on this podcast. And our other guest was Abby Salcedo, who is a partner of mine in writing a, a particular article and is towards the end of her Ph.D. program at Texas State. And so um, I um, was in conversation with both and I thought this would be fun to have a conversation together. So that's my introduction and I would hand it off to Shandon and then Abby to continue introducing yourselves.
3: Sure. So I'm Shandon Klein. Um, I am a first year PhD student at SMU at Southern Methodist University um, in the graduate program for religious studies. And my focus is in religious ethics. Um, I also have a master's of divinity degree. Um, I went through seminary right before I entered into the doctoral program. So It's been a lot of fun. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about what I'm
4: studying.
0: (laughs) Hey, Shandon, did you change schools or did you get your MDiv at SMU as well? I
3: got my MDiv at SMU too. Mm
4: -hmm. Um, Thank you, Peter, for that introduction. My name is Abby Salcedo um, and I am a third year uh, PhD student at Texas State in the APSEE PhD program. And APSEE stands for Adult Professional and Community Education. And as far as my work, I work for the University of Texas at Austin and I am the assistant director over operations and educational strategies over the diagnostic medicine department. And my research interests are critical HRD, anti-Black racism, critical race theory, um, strategic HRD. And currently I am working on my dissertation Uh, My proposal, I'm supposed to be defunding it next month. I'm super excited, but I'm almost completed with um, my proposal. And my dissertation is a um, study that seeks to conduct a thorough investigation on the impact of diversity and inclusion um, trainings and programs uh, focusing on uh, anti-Black racism at higher education institutions since the death of George Floyd and I believe George Floyd's death marks a pivotal point in our history because following his death in May 2020, widespread protest and social unrest um, prompted various corporations, nonprofit universities, and other organizations to issue statements in favor of Black Lives Matter movement. and um, unprecedented, commitments to racial justice efforts um, were implied. So I'm trying to figure out whether or not these efforts are effective, um, what's working, what's not working. So that way we can keep this momentum moving moving forward.
0: It's so great to have you both here. I'm going to start, Abby, uh, Shannon, I'm going to start with you because um, I have a friend, Ben, he always asks this and every time we have a meeting what is your anxiety? And uh, I oftentimes have to kind of run through that. Uh, I want to start with you and here, and then, and then, um Abby, I want you to reflect as you okay. get, as you're getting started, Shannon, uh, what is your anxiety? What are you worried about? What's the thing that, that sits in the back of your head and the voice that you have to talk down um and talk yourself through? So what's your anxiety?
3: <laughs> um, well, or it could be
0: plural by the way, but
3: Yeah. Um, So I'll tell you just the the world of religious studies in general is pretty new to me. My background's in the sciences. And so I spent about a little over 15 years going towards, you know, I'm like, I was going to be a pediatric heart surgeon. It's going to go through the med school route. And so sciences, I have that all down. Uh, religious studies and spirituality is completely different than the sciences. Um, from the sciences, you can be like, okay, A goes to B, which goes to C. Okay, so with religious studies, you can be like, okay, so you have A and B. You could go the, to Z or you could go to Y and you can possibly go through this. It's just very, there's so many different um aspects to it and different lenses to it that you can bring. Um, Obviously, a lot of things are subjective. Things are dependent on what culture you're coming from, what social location that you're coming from. Um, So that just adds a different type of complexity to these types of studies. And it's also been a really long time since I've gone through philosophy. I mean, I'm like, I graduated my undergrad in 2009 oh gosh (laughs) so you know I'm coming back in I just graduated with my MDiv in 2021 so I had a pretty big break in between school so my anxiety is I'm coming into a lot of these subjects just with fresh eyes and being like okay um I don't know anything about this and I'm learning some of this for the first time. Um, And especially with the rigor in these classes, um, you have to learn how to read fast and learn how to pick out those, Mm -hmm. um, those, you know, key points in a specific book relatively quickly. Cause you have about like five books to read that during that week. So, um, I think that that's just an anxiety, just learning how to read effectively and how to take notes effectively and not try and reinvent the wheel. I want to be able to, if I'm writing something, I want to be able to do something with it in the future. <laughs> so instead of just completely losing it to a bunch of notebooks that I'll never go and see again, um, so I think that that's kind of the, the main anxiety coming into some of these, um, these subjects brand new and um, <laughs> feeling like I have to deal with imposter syndrome, I guess.
4: So I also suffer from imposter syndrome, so I can relate to that, Shandon. Um, as I reflect, I, I'm still feeling anxious, but I'll start with my first anxiety when I entered my PhD program. So most people in my cohort had a background in education. So they felt extremely confident. There were um, conversations happening in the classrooms that I had no idea what was going on. So I felt out of place at times. Um, But then that just made me want to go even stronger with my readings, with um, me participating and collaborating with other people, going to conferences, And I feel like in the end, it worked to my advantage because I was always staying abreast on what was going on within my field versus some of my cohorts who were more um, relaxed and felt like, you know, they were more uh, confident um, and more knowledgeable. Um, But reading definitely um, helped me out. Reading, uh, listening to podcasts, Audible. Oh, my gosh. Audible is like a lifesaver. (laughs) I uh, travel a lot back and forth um, to Houston. I'm in Austin. So during my travels, I would you know, listen to a lot of books. My daughters will join me um, in my mission of learning more about adult education. Uh, so that was my first anxiety entering the program. Most recently is uh, attending conferences and presenting. I'm used to presenting posters. I'm okay with that. Um, But in front of a a crowd, in front of an audience, that's like completely different for me. Although I I do it within my institution. I do attend different courses and I do, I co-teach, I did co-teach one course. And that was pretty easy. I'm doing it again this upcoming semester But they are uh, like smaller crowds and they know me, they know my style, they know my passion um, for anti-Black racism studies. But when going to conferences, I'm like, oh my gosh, but what if someone does not understand my passion or what if they just don't get it? What will I do at that point? Like I freak myself out for no reason. (laughs) But that's something that I'm, I'm working, you know, through. Um, by just speaking to people like at my workplace who don't necessarily understand the reason um, for us to have diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So I do tend to talk to people who don't necessarily share the same passion that I do. And honestly, that has worked a lot because it helped me understand what exactly they're looking for and instead of me speaking from my heart, they would rather hear facts. They would rather hear what's currently going on in research and not necessarily my feelings. So it it actually helped out.
0: One of the things that I'm hearing from both of you is a common thread for all five of us, which is that I think all five of us have done out-of-field PhDs. <laughs> Peter, you did out-of-field, yes. right?
4: Yes, yes, yes. I know Lelia so did. Yeah. Um, I, Got my bachelor's in psychology, my master's um, in business administration.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we're all in the same, we're all in the same boat. That (laughs) That is is so funny. (laughs) It is. And I'm telling you, I think it's increasingly common. Yeah.
4: And
1: then then curriculum and instruction PhD. So. (laughs) Yeah. And it is, it is increasingly
0: common for this to happen. And I think it's something to talk about a little bit, which is that, that first, Boy, that first year, it's it, it is panic-riven, right? You, hear people, again, you, you the, hear people. You hear people discuss things that you have no, uh, no right. avenue to, right?
3: No right. clue. <laughs> You're reading no clue an article
1: with do. all of your textbooks open around you. Like, what are they talking about here? I got to go find out What that is?
3: So they're talking Hi. about an author. Yeah. like right. name dropping. <laughs> name all dropping these is people. <laughs> yeah, it's like, required. And yeah, that and means- Shannon, I
0: think our I think our friends who who are in the natural sciences, like you used to be there, it, it is kind of this natural, uh, uh, you know narrowing arrow or narrowing triangle that you did this in your master's and it naturally goes to, you know, a lot of folks know what they're going to be doing in their PhD when they're finishing their master's degree in some of the, some of the natural sciences, because you kind of know the trajectory you're on. That's not necessarily the case for some of us who end up in uh, the humanities or in social sciences. We're kind of left to, uh, to start reading, (laughs) and catching up. So true.
4: I think it's hilarious looking back because It definitely amplified my imposter syndrome, um, not knowing what was going on and feeling out of place. Um, and I questioned myself like the entire first year, why am I doing this? What am I doing here? (laughs) But one thing that did help, I, um, partnered with a senior student and I was like, what helped you? What helped you in your first year? what articles should I be reading right now to help me keep up with what's going on? Um, And she definitely was the one who opened up, her name is Sierra Sullivan. She definitely was the one who opened up doors for me and also helped expand my knowledge.
3: Amen to that. Um, Definitely with, um, the one thing I'm really grateful with my program is just how um, it's not really, Of course, it's competitive, but we look at it as, you know, really just like a family unit, you know, and we all, what's so great about um, some of our courses, we have a, we have four core courses that we have to take over the first two years, Um, and so everybody from within the program gets to be in one class together, Uh, so we get to create all of these really awesome relationships and get to learn from one another, but at the same time, each of us are experts in our own area. And so um, the great thing is there's going to be somebody in the classroom who is an expert at, you know, say history. You're like, you're the history guy. Mm. Help me out here. You know, um, I, I think that that has been just so rewarding and so fulfilling to to cultivate those relationships. And I know that we'll definitely have that after this whole process of um, being able to collaborate with one another on and seeing how though our different expertise kind of align with one another, move past one another, kind of go along, rub alongside each other. I, I think that that's a really cool piece of the experience.
1: So this is something we've talked about a lot in this podcast: developing the connections with your, with your, with your peers or your, your courses and stuff. And are you two both in face-to-face programs? Because this is particularly, particularly challenging. Um, and if you're even if you're in a face-to-face program now and you're virtual because of COVID, challenging to as from a teacher perspective to mimic those critical discussions that come out in a face-to-face class, which I love. So I dropped. Frary in the the comment box, because the first time I heard of Paul Freire, I didn't know who that was. I now own like six books of his that I've read, you know, and and those conversations are just so rich and you like realize the whole world is opening up. How do you replicate that in, you know, in distant, distant setting? Uh, and so I think that's it's so important but it's it is challenging in different contexts
2: being intentional about it i think mm-hmm. particularly in in pandemic times and even in online programs or or hybrid programs where you do a good bit um, from your own home office or home corner of the bedroom or whatever the home office looks like it, you have to be intentional about building reaching out having those conversations because there's a lot less incidental contact in the coffee room or the pub or the whatever, let's go grab lunch type opportunities.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I know that um, like, so ours is um, mine's in an in-person program, um, but during my seminary um, career, Uh, We had, you know, that time where we were virtual and then we had the time that we were in person before that. Um, And, yeah, it was a lot harder um, when you were virtual and that intentionality was critical. Um, But one of the things that they did for us um, while we were still virtual, trying to figure out whether we would be in person for our first semester with our Ph.D., Um, They had um, everybody who was within the program to go on to um, go on to zoom. Everybody would explain their different uh, areas and um, they would have breakout rooms of people within your concentration. And so you could start to build those relationships and I mean, I don't know about y'all, but when you're in a room of hearing everybody's different expertise, it's just kind of fun. <laughs> you want to learn more about it, especially the people who have um subjects that are similar to yours. Um, so just having the spaces and as definitely would say for the professors out there, is like if you can cultivate a space to to um, be able to share those things. Uh, like there's obviously something that brought them there. <laughs> there's going to have some kind of crossover there. Um, uh, I think that that's a a really big piece of, um, I think, success uh, at the end of the day, because um, there's just going to be things that you don't know that your peer does. Abby, I Hi. wanted to, oh, go ahead.
4: No, I agree with you, Shannon, on that, because there, like I mentioned when I started, I pretty much had no clue what was going on and what was happening. But having those relationships and being able to network actually helps out a lot. I've been um, added on to like conference presentations just because I had more knowledge on on one thing, you know, that the presenter didn't really know about. And she would want for me to speak more on, and that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have those conversations. And my program is also face to face. But the online learning is definitely challenging. There were times where people's internets would go out. um, People would speak at the same time. Um, People wouldn't show because they didn't have the right link to Zoom. It became very challenging. So I'm really, really happy that my program opened the doors for us to start, you know, in-person learning again.
0: (laughs) Well, Abby, I was going to ask you, and I'm really glad you you, uh, described this already. I was going to ask you... What was the process by which you began um experiencing uh sharing scholarship through conference presentations? How did that process happen for you? And I'm I I already heard part of that, which is you had an area that you could contribute to somebody else's work or to work with some other people, but kind of talk about how you found that voice in yourself um up to the point that you are now.
4: That's a great question. Um before I started the program, I did watch some YouTube videos on current students or students who had already graduated talk about their experiences. So when before I started the program, I did make a list of goals that I wanted to achieve prior to my first year, and one of them had present at a conference. So when I started the program, like I said, I partnered with a senior student I didn't know um, the right conferences to attend and I did not know the process either. So having her was extremely instrumental because she was able to walk that process with me. So linking um, up with her and also understanding that you do not have to have a study like, you know, from start to finish completed before you can present at a conference. It can be an idea. Right? Just a theory that you want to present. So when she explained this to me, I was like, well, I actually want to have my research um, involve anti racism and also HRD, human resource development. So how can I do that? She said, well, just do a little literature review and come up with three research questions and your methodology and present it at a conference. And I receive a ton of feedback. Um, It was extremely helpful. And from that, I took all the ideas that I gathered and I did a pilot study. And from that pilot study, I was able to tweak even more um, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to look at and who my participants will be. And then that's how my dissertation happened.
0: That's brilliant. So, that's so, yeah. that's so exciting to, uh, and it's, it's great that you had that kind of guidance. You know, I don't know of anybody whose first pub was independent, right? Mine wasn't. It was my first pub was because my professor pulled me on and let me help and, um, getting that kind of experience, I think is, is really, really, really valuable. What's on your list, uh, Shandon, when you're thinking about the things, you may not have written them down, but what are some things that you had hoped to accomplish uh, while you're doing your PhD up up to the point of graduation?
3: Sure. Um, So publishing is one. Um, Presenting, obviously. (laughs) Two. Um, I'm hoping at the end of all of this, um, writing a book um, would be three Um, I think overall, though, um, from within the program, uh, one of the things on my list is to figure out what my voice is um, compared to the my colleagues, uh, I know that I have a unique voice. I just need to figure out how to hone that and what that is. Uh, so I think that that's going to be, that's going to be a learning process for the rest of my life, of course. but um, but I, I'm hoping that through the um, the PhD program that I can kind of build confidence in what that voice is and what my expertise may be. Brilliant.
1: One of the things that I remember my professor saying when I was at that point was to to first read a lot of the journals, especially the authors who resonate with you, read what they've written and get familiar with those journals. But she also then said, there is not your voice. You will like a lot of things. And I, you know, I like Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, um, some of the very narrative Uh, deeply autoethnographic, you know, some of the people that write in very narrative storytelling ways, um, but that's not my voice. I like it, not my voice. And so you are right about finding your voice and your voice is not the same as anyone else's. And I think that's that's one insight.
3: Which also brings more anxiety. Mm. You know what I mean? Like um, you're just like, wait, my voice is so different (laughs) that what, what if people don't understand me? What if I can't translate from my voice to their ears? You know, um, it it brings a lot of anxiety when, when you realize how different your voice might be to the fields that you may even be in, or that your, your lens might be completely different. And I
1: I think Peter Scott would say that's all the more reason to keep keep hounding your professors because you're not only writing for an assignment and getting over that hump is a big hump, but you're writing to find that voice and asking them, do you understand what I'm trying to say? And sometimes we get like I always say to my students, we get married to our words and, and that's not the same as your voice. We have the idea that we want to project and get across to the audience. But we choose words that don't do that effectively. That doesn't mean the idea is bad. And that means keep trying a different way. Try different ways. Try try the narrative way. Try doing a conversational. uh, uh, Try doing a descriptive narrative. Try doing a very straight academic writing. Try the different ways until you find the way to represent your voice, your ideas, the things that are in your head.
0: But I do commend you for thinking about your audience. Um, it's something that we've talked about on the podcast previously. That scholarship is not—it's—it's it's not for your sake. It's—it starts in your brain, but the goal is to—is um, to communicate, and so thinking about your audience as you project your voice. And being true to yourself and being true to what needs to be expressed from yourself, but also finding out how to connect with an audience is really, really valuable. Um, and I think most of us trip into one or other, one or the other. Right? Where we, we, I, I spend the, a lot of time thinking about my own voice and not really about my audience, or I spend all my time thinking about my audience and lose my authenticity. So that's a really, really, um, I think, valuable paradigm that you've described and something that will serve you well as a scholar.
3: I, I definitely hope so. Um, one of the things that is um, very difficult for me is that one of the things that I feel very called to is being a bridge to um, for academia to those who are in the public. And so... Um, and going back and forth. So mm. bringing the things out in the public to academia yeah. <laughs> and then bringing the things that we learn in academia to the public, because it makes yeah. no sense really for important. us to be in our ivory towers yeah. talking about all of these uh, philosophical things, all this metaphysics, and not actually do something with it. And so, I mean, hey, I am in ethics. you know, oh. so um we we need to be able to um convey this in a way that can actually do some work in the world. And yeah. so, um, so audience is really important, but I really love your um, comment on, remembering not to lose your voice in that, even though you're trying to convey that to specific audiences.
0: Hey, Abby, I've got a question for you. You're about to defend prospectus. Do you call it the prospectus or proposal? What do you call it there at your school? Proposal. Yeah. So uh, how you feeling?
4: I I feel ready. Good. I feel the day of, I will be scared. <laughs> but I feel ready. I feel prepared. This is something I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, and I'm super glad that you guys were talking about voice. And this ties back to what Peter was saying initially um, just being intentional about the work that you do. And when I thought of the idea of talking about racism, I knew it was possible for people not to receive the message. And I knew it would become frustrating for me. Um, I decided to hire a therapist that I, you know, talk to about my frustrations, not only in the program, but also at work and even in family life, Um, because my husband is half white, half Mexican, um, and I'm Afro-Latina. My family is from Dominican Republic, and my siblings and I were the first to be born in the U.S., So that being said, you know, there were some conflicts, you know, within the family when I had my discussions about race, work, and school. So I felt the need to, to, you know, talk to someone about it, a third party, and that was extremely helpful for me, and it helped find my voice. Um, And as Shandon was, you know, stating earlier, you have to communicate your message to different audiences, and being able to hone in on those skills and understanding how to communicate, is extremely challenging. Yeah. <laughs> but um, this is something that I have been working on. And I already know from the intellectual standpoint how to speak to the audience, um, in a, not an audience, but the scholarly audience in a way that they will understand. My challenge is the public. Sure. So I am extremely ready, you know, to defend my proposal. Um, The only issue I have is just being able to communicate to the public. But I feel like that's something that I'll be able to.
0: So I've got I've got a story for you. When I when I was when I was uh, defending my prospectus, my proposal, I was uh, uh, my friend Hassan. Uh, was going to come and vi- and visit because he was going to defend the week after me, and so he wanted to come in and sit down and and uh, and observe my uh, proposal, my defense, but he didn't show up, and so I'm di- I'm making my proposal and I'm doing my defense, you know, in front of the room, and I look mm-hmm. out the window and Hassan's looking in the window, chain smoking. And he was so nervous. He told me afterwards, he said, how did it go? And I said, it went fine. It was, I was surprised it went fine. He goes, I was so nervous for you. I couldn't come in. I had to, I was. He had to, and he was just chain smoking outside. Now, let me tell you about Hassan. He was not, not smart. And I think what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is there's knowing your stuff and then there's processing the anxieties that come with that. And those, those anxieties are not necessarily because you're not good enough because Hassan is good enough, man. But it's this other stuff that runs through. And, and I am just so impressed to hear somebody describing the uh, self-awareness to hire a therapist to work through some things while you're in program because you're, you are at the peak, uh, you, you, have set yourself into peak levels of stress and why not have somebody help you think through how to manage that? It's not because you're not good enough.
3: And, and yes. I, I was going to just, um, say it's, even more important to have a therapist when we are talking about subjects that actually reflect on our own personhood. Oh, so I also point. yeah I also am um, looking at um, racism, anti-racism um, type of things within my work. Um, And I'm looking at um, specifically the ethic of resistance um, that is kind of cultivated from the lives and writings of black women, Um, that ability to continue to keep going in the face of this insurmountable systemic evil that's in front of us. And the ethic of control, which is more about um, about power seeking and more about um, status seeking, but you can't help but say, okay, am I resisting or am I trying to um, to control status? you know what I mean like those you're studying things that are, things that have to do with your life, you know? And so when when you're studying things like that or you're studying racism or you're reading these histories that are absolutely traumatic or learning about your field that might have come out of racism, <laughs> it's it's something that you really do need to have a therapist, a pastor, somebody on deck yeah. to talk about those things. Yeah, um, yeah. it, it's so I'm I'm very happy <laughs> that she said I'm like, I have a great therapist as well. Um yeah, I can not say that enough for sure.
4: Yes. So everything, yes, to what Shandon just stated. Um when I started speaking to my therapist, I was thinking of my voice and you know, I thought of him as an audience, and one thing that he told me, you don't have to do that with me. Speak to me unfiltered. So I no longer have to stop, think, process, how am I going to say this in a way that he will be able to receive it? I can just just you know divulge any and everything and just know that he knows that like my heart is in a good place. He understands my history, my background. So he gets to know me for me. And I'm not just some person, you know, standing in front of an audience. He knows why I'm thinking the way that I'm thinking. And he's also able to point out how I can work through my issues as well. So it's not like I'm stuck and I, I'm just going to be stuck for the rest of my life. So it's extremely important um, for me to just have that.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, I, I don't want to be reductive here, but I imagine, you know, if my job is to study an amoeba in the petri dish, I could have a lot of stress about that, right? Because you you want to do a good job, but it's different when you are the person in the petri dish. And and I know that so many of us, especially in the social sciences, begin investigating things where our own identities or experiences or the history of experiences weigh upon um the, the observations that we're making and And uh, so I, I really think that that's, that's a very interesting um, observation and piece of advice is to be able to, is to be able to get into that stuff safely or have somebody help you think about getting into that safely.
3: Right. Um, And uh, Scott, I, I think that one of the hardest piece of knowing that you are also part of the. Little dot that's on the Petri dish is (laughs) that um, you have to recognize that you are a voice, not the voice. Great. So the I think that that's probably one of the hardest things, um, especially um, speaking from the social location of black women. It's like I am just one black woman. I cannot speak for the whole, you know,
0: you can't be responsible for this.
3: I can't be responsible for that. But at the same time, that voice is a voice along this huge kaleidoscope of voices that um, that leads towards truth. Okay. So the, yeah. it, I think that, you know, a voice is important, but it's just really important that we don't completely conflate that with just voice, like the voice in general for this specific group. And that's even harder when you're doing ethnography work. You know, because yeah, it's kind of right. like we're we're kind of trying to give these results of this group that we're we're studied. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's only you know X amount of people from within that group. And yes, you can extrapolate a few things, but you know, everybody's got their unique stories and lives and you know thoughts. So yeah, I think that's pretty important.
2: Yeah, there were there there will be pressures all along the way within the doc program and after. Uh all those pressures don't go away. What y'all are describing is a, a pretty constant negotiation of various social pressures that we feel internally imposed and also imposed by in some cases our audiences that we want to communicate with and and finding your voice and expressing it in a way that is, at least to a reasonable degree, uh, hearable or accessible to the audience uh, is is complicated in and of itself. And it's more complicated when your audience may represent at any one point a range. It's not your audience in the monolith either. I mean, your audience, you'll get kudos from one part of your audience and slapped down from the other part <laughs> of your audience at the same time. And so what's real, what is true? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's the nature. And that's that goes on within and after doc programs. I'm glad y'all are talking about it and and are self-aware enough. And this is one thing we've talked about, the self-awareness that has to grow. Because we think of a doc program as learning about things and stuff and people and ideas, right? And doing methodologies, right? I know about, you know, ethnographies or phenomenologies or quasi-experimental designs or whatever, program evaluation. But it's knowing yourself. That's a huge part of the journey, isn't it? That's what I've heard you all talk about. Fascinating.
0: Well, I'll say this, Shandon, good luck over the next few years, and Abby, good luck over the next few weeks.